Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and a very warm welcome back in the pink the podcast with me natalie pinkham i've got a brand new series i'm really excited about it i'm really excited to bring you some really cool guests over the next few weeks and i'm also really excited to have teamed up with bose who as you probably already know work tirelessly to perfect the art of sound so feel like a pretty good fit for a podcast Check out their new Bose Noise Cancelling 700 range, which leave you with your head up so you never miss a thing. Which is the perfect segue to my first guest, because he is a man who knows all about never missing a thing. He is a world-renowned photographer, Mr David Yarrow. He's got a really interesting perspective on the world because he actually has a background in finance. So his business brain gives him the unique ability to see the world through a different lens. See what I did there? He tells me all about the fabulous people he's worked with, the crazy places he's been, and his views on our ever-changing world. He's a passionate conservationist, a tireless worker, and a committed dad. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. David Yarrow. Well, David Yarrow, here we are on Sloan Street, um, in what I have to say is kind of organised chaos. Um, But it looks beautiful because... On every single wall, we've got airs, eyes glaring down at us from the stunning photos that you've taken around the world. I couldn't call them photos. What are they called? Portraits? Photographs. 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 Photos makes it like something from yeah. Snappy Snaps. But, um, so, yeah, just, just tell us why you're here this week and why you're back in London, because it is a rare thing to find David Yarrow in this country, isn't it? Um, well, I guess I'm here about 60, 70 days a year. My kids are here. Um, and they go to school or university here. And we had a show last week, well, it started last week in Maddox in Westbourne Grove. And artists should always be there, so they should engage with their customer base. So we've had a long week. I started off with uh, grilling from Piers Morgan last Monday on Good Morning Britain, and then we've had lots of events, and it's been great fun. Kind of exhausting because the whole weekend we did book signing, and that was, there were flatteringly long queues. So um, it hasn't really stopped, but I go back to America uh, in 36 hours. But it's great to be here. It's, it's where my home is, where my friends are, and where our 
as you actually you you said it was slightly unkempt or whatever your word is. Organized chaos. Organized chaos. Because it's just lots of it's, stuff, it's, but I mean, no, no, it's you're ordered. Being, you're being sweet. It's a car, it's a car crash. <laughs> no, it's, not, it's, <laughs> it's, it's just, uh, everything is going, there's an awful lot going on. And by the way, it's the content that matters, so I don't care in what form it comes. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's what's inside the books that count. Um, let's just cast your mind way, way back to when it all began, because... Um, I find um, something really fascinating about you, and I know it's been talked about a lot, but the fact that you juggled life as a hedge fund manager and an artist, which for me seems like a a real juxtaposition, two kind of very different people um, living almost parallel lives. How did you reconcile that, or was was one a sort of counterbalance to the other? It's a... Quite a long question, and it requires probably an even longer answer. I um, I was a photographer before I went into the world of finance, and I did an Olympics in uh, 80s, 88, and did the World Cup in 86. I did US Masters. I did five Wimbledons in a row. I worked for The Times, uh, All Sport, Getty Images. So photography was in my blood from an early uh, age, I also had an economics degree from Edinburgh University. And uh, we have to remember, if you go back to the 80s, photography was seen to be a very weird thing that people like the train spotting might have do a bit of photography, whereas banking was Bud Fox and Gordon Gecko and Wall Street and sexy, and that's what people did. And when I was at university, most people were going into work for Salomons or Goldman's or Morgan Stanley. It was the kind of de rigueur, it's what you did. And there was a bit of parental peer pressure, and uh, but also friend pressure, peer pressure as well. And uh, so I put the cameras down. I had a I had a job offer of either fifteen thousand working for NatWest Bank, or fifteen thousand working for Allsport, which became Getty Images. And I chose NatWest Bank. And I look back on that decision way back in nineteen eighty eight, and it was the right decision for me to take because um, by doing that I, you're so young when you're 21 22 you've got so much to learn and I was thrown into a dealing room of four or five hundred people from every part of the world and any ego squash it doesn't matter who, who you are what you've done and you learn from the bottom up and that was very good training for me you also learn an environment where you have to get up at five in the morning and sometimes you go home at eight o'clock and, and bankers and investment bankers, because of what happened in 2008, I think there's an extent to which they've been, they've been vilified, they've been pigeonholed mm-hmm. as being sort of a brat pack that's fast cars and fast lifestyles and no work ethic. I don't think that's entirely true. There's a lot of people whose lives were ruined by 2007, 2008 who have worked very, very hard. And in many cases have found the job that they did in, 2000, in 1990 has gone. A bit like Thomas Cook has gone the job of working as a trader in a lot of financial markets has gone. Um, when I left from the um, financial world into uh, working as a fine art photographer, to me it was almost seamless. It wasn't that juxtaposition. It was, it was to me, a very natural evolution because the platform for both is research, uh, a lot of research, in, in, when I was at a banker, I spent hours in the evening researching things. And now when I go into the wild, I spend an awful lot of time researching. I don't turn up there raw. I turn up there very informed. Um, and then secondly, it's about 
dealing with people and working with people and, and, and uh, all the time trying to build collaborations and partnerships and trying to make one plus one equal two and a half. So I learned the sales side and I learned the research side. The difference now is of a product that is not a function of exogenous variables. It's not a function of things beyond my control like Lehman Brothers or Greek default. It's uh, a function of my own ability or otherwise. Of course, if there's a calamitous world economic downturn, every brand, whatever you're in, is going to suffer. But by and large, it's in my control now. But I don't think it was... It's not the jump that ever, a lot of people think it was. And the people that most recognize that are actually in the financial service community that are still there because they understand that I probably couldn't have done one with the other, without the other. See, that's amazing. I didn't realize there was such a synergy between the two. But also, I think, I suppose, in terms of the photographers and artists that I know are so different from the bankers and the financial guys that I know, you just think never the train shall meet. But actually, I guess in some ways, maybe your photography was some kind of, well, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but was it any kind of escapism therapy whilst you were working in the finance sector? Oh, I think it was, it was I'm, I'm totally upfront and honest about it. It was my road to redemption. My life in financial services was a complete car crash. I, I found myself... Um, earning a lot of money, um, getting married, having two children, suddenly employing 30, 40 people, uh, and everyone thinking my life was blissful, but being as lonely as I've ever been in my life. And um, Why so? Uh, just the responsibilities, both at home and at work, mm. and not being able to find a balance, and struggling in every aspect of it. And then something had to give and I think also financial markets were going through a very tough time even in the fallout from in in, um, I mean our business grew up evolved and it grew quickly um, really on 9-11 between the two planes in 9-11 we I was in America and for through full by randomness through luck rather than judgment um, by the time the second plane tragically went in we'd removed all risk from the table for all our investors because from my mindset it just didn't look like a small plane that had gone in there and markets were tricky anyway in in 2001 in the autumn and so I went from having a small business to suddenly being seen to be wrongly um, some kid that had the Midas touch just purely because I'd taken an instinctive decision and I was ill-equipped for employing 35 people as opposed to employing 10 people and everything that goes with that and my home life suffered um <clears throat> excuse me um so i i but everything happens for a reason I know it's a bit of a cop-out to be a fatalist and i think uh, uh the journey that i've taken and my road to redemption has uh i wouldn't have got here if i'd stayed in financial services if i'd stayed married perhaps i probably wouldn't be doing what i'm doing now um, I think there was a tipping point for me, which was um, in 2008 um, with uh, Bernie Madoff, the, the, the crook that Robert De Niro played. And I, I didn't know who he was, but um, so many of our investors had invested with him. So on the 8th of December that year, when he was arrested by the FBI, I, I laughed and I did naively and I thought, isn't it crazy the number of crooks in our industry? I had no idea that in a month's time our business would be effectively over because 
we became an ATM machine for all the other investors in the world that had invested money with him. So I went from uh, having a very secure business to a business that really was in its last legs because of someone I'd never met before in my life. And um, so that was really when I started to pick up my cameras more and more. And uh, uh, from about, so it seems seems such a long time ago, but it was only 12 years ago. We should give hope to everyone else that you can... um, you can rebuild, you can have a second innings, you can have a career change, you can have a second life, you can airbrush stuff from the past. I think it's very tough for a lot of people in the financial services world now that where their job their job is kind of gone, effectively gone, and they might be in their, the summer of their lives, and they're going to say, what am I going to do in the autumn of my life, in the, the job that I prescribed to the only job I'm equipped to do mm. is effectively no longer there. But I guess that's always been true. It's been true if you're a coal miner in the 50s and 60s, if you worked in the shipyards. It's, that's the nature of evolution of, of business. Mm. Do you think, had it not been for your stint um, in finance, that you would be as good a photographer as you are now? Had you <coughs> just grown up in photography and not had that kind of that history, if you like, and the back against the wall and, and the adversity that you, you talk about, and clearly emotional trauma as well that that brought with it. Well, there's, 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 there's two parts to that question. There's when, I, when, when some people want to have a go at me, and that's fine, because everyone has a... Sometimes you're, if you're there, you're doing all right, you're there to be shot at. People turn around and say, yeah, Dave, he's, he's a good photographer, but he's a businessman. And I don't get hurt by that. That's a compliment to me. You know, my, my mum was a great artist, but she took a front at any sense of commerciality. So I think to be a good businessman is not... Um, or to to be solid in the the merits of debits and credits is not something to be ashamed of. Um, but your question hints at whether um, you, there can be um, acceleration in your um, emotional intelligence because photography is about emotional intelligence. It's not about a camera. And I have no doubt that if you go through pain or if, you're, if your life all the time is bottom left to top right, and of course I know no one like that and you know no one like that and we might perceive people to have those kind of lives, but no one has that kind of life. So everyone goes through tough times. It doesn't matter where it is rel- relatively, they still do. Um, and you learn a lot in that. And photography is about emotion. It's about emotion much more than it is about a camera. So the fact that, yeah, I've had some bumps on the road probably has made me, uh, uh, I think, uh, more equipped to uh, harness that, um, that emotion and amplify that emotion mm. in mm. my pictures. Yeah, I think probably. Mm. Why didn't you stick with sports photography? Because you talked about taking those pictures back in... Mexico in 86 and you were, in a, you were a young pup then you got it wasn't just any photo it was that iconic one of Maradona holding the, the World Cup aloft why wasn't there enough in sports photography that kept you there? Uh, it's a good question it's the right question um, and uh, I, um, I remember doing the Olympics in 88 Winter Olympics and I couldn't. The hot ticket there was to photograph the uh, East German uh, ice skater, uh, Katarina Witt, because she was the, the hottest girl there at the Olympics. Mm-hmm. 
uh, I got to photograph Eddie the Eagle. <laughs> and, and no one, no one really knew that Eddie Eagle was oh, going to. Oh, but they did afterwards. No, they do yeah. And it's funny when the film came out recently. Yeah. It's my picture that's used no on, the, on the oh, film. Awesome. Um, but the reason I was asked to do it is they thought, you know, Eddie's going fairly slow and David's shit. So the only person that can really <laughs> photograph Eddie would be David. It's so it's putting it's really putting two bands yeah. together. But you try really hard to get uh, uh, pictures that were different. Um, and I did a lot of bobsled. I did the world. I did the downhill, um, albeit the finishing line. They thought it'd be easier for me to do at the finishing line <laughs> than halfway up. And it was uh, it was before digital, so you'd come back, and then Fuji or Kodak would be sponsoring the Olympics. So depending on which film you used, you'd go to their editing labs, and you'd wait two or three hours to get your stuff back and wire it. And no matter how hard I tried it was difficult to get stuff that other people weren't getting. There were two reasons. Mm. I mean, I mentioned the other night, I think you were there, I mentioned one of my great heroes was Hugh McIlvenny, the sports writer, yeah. and Hugh uh, always hanging his coattails, and he was a genius, and uh, I spent a lot of time, mostly when it was dark, with Hugh, and uh, he was unique. He had a way with words. Um, and yet the people that were equipping him with photographs some of them were very talented Eamon McCabe of The Observer was very talented there was a lot of Me Too stuff there was a lot of Me Too's in the old terms <laughs> rather than the new terms yeah. Yeah. Uh, a lot of hackneyed stuff banal um, and difficult to be original if you're at centre court and you're either side of the umpire in that dugout for photographers it is very difficult to get a picture of Nadal, Federer, Djokovic, mm. Andy, in when he was playing, that is different from other people. Mm. And with that goes original content or lack of original content. I've got a huge admiration for sports photographers, and there are sports photographers that create art. But by and large, it's the business of reportage, mm. and it's a business of reportage where there are 50 or 60 other people doing it. Well, when, when, potentially thousands yeah. as well with the mobile phone. Yes, exactly. Um, so I was with a great photographer uh, recently who you will all know and he does a lot of athletics and a lot of Wimbledon and I said show me your best picture of Rafa Nadal very ex expressive tennis player and I saw I saw one he'd taken in, in Paris where I think it's partly because of the light and it's an open air court in the evenings you can play with light more in the French Open than you can in the other three of them. And, and um, it was full of energy and atmosphere and emotion. And I said, that is worth an awful lot of money. Mm. It then becomes an issue as who owns that photograph. Does Rafa Nadal own the picture? Does the French Open own the picture? Because sure, they can print it in the newspapers the next day, but to sell it to mm. an art gallery and put it... who? I thought it was the person who took the picture. It, no, there, there can be issues. There can be issues in 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 sport in terms if you've got Tiger Woods at Augusta, and you try and sell it for a hundred grand. I think Augusta National would would ask a few questions of, of that. Um, but it, I think there's a bigger issue, simply that do people want those pictures on their wall? You imagine a couple around here, and the the husband might be uh, a flamboyant Spaniard, and he says, "I I really want a picture of." Rafa Nadal on my living room wall. And the wife might say, well, 
Can you not just have a small one in your bedroom? I know, but do we really <laughs> need to have a picture of a tennis player? Above your bed, maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Like a poster. Yeah. Um, I also struggled to find... There were a lot of sports photographers that I still on great terms with, and a few actually came to the exhibition over the last three or four days. Uh, it's just... It's, there is too much content. Yeah. And I worried also that I wasn't learning a, enough from people that uh, could that had a breadth in their skill sets. Um, there's an old saying in photograph, press photography, which is rather unfortunate, which people say, have you ever met a happy press photographer? And I'm sure that, given what you do, that might resonate with you. A lot of them tend to be quite grumpy and down on, <laughs> down on life. Um, and I understand why, because... I think even last week, Sports Illustrated, which when I grew up was the best sports magazine in the world by some margin. If you look at their staff now on a photographic side or an editorial side, it is probably one-tenth of what it was 20 years ago because they can insource so much and it's so much cheaper for them. In the Pink is sponsored by Bose, who've been perfecting the art of sound so you can listen in unrivaled quality and comfort. The new Bose noise cancelling 700s take it to a whole other level. So you'll always hear what you want in perfect quality, no matter where you are. Also, be heard like never before with their unrivaled four microphone system, which isolates your voice whilst cancelling the noise around you. Always stay connected with Bose first of its kind augmented reality function that will change the way you think about travel, exercise and learning. Never be caught out because... They have an excellent 20 hours of battery life. And for all you fashionistas, they come in black and silver so you can fit them around your style. Treat your ears with the new Bose Noise Cancelling 700s, a sound experience like never before. Now, back to our interview. Um, now, obviously, that wasn't your path and you went down a different route and you've become world-renowned photographer with wildlife and a conservationist and a huge amount of travel involved in that. I want to know and understand how on earth you decide where to go. I know that sounds like a really basic question, but how do you decide on a location? Do you identify a subject that you want to photograph and then you go there? Or do you choose a location because it might have a cross-section of those animals? So you should come and work for us because we need people of your brains and ability. Really to, yeah. <laughs> <I don't, laughs> it's a pretty basic question. But there's, there's two screens. The first screen is uh, authenticity. Uh, we're not going to do particularly well to go and photograph the Eiffel Tower tomorrow. We know it's there. Or the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Um, or Rome, the Colosseum of Rome. We all know it's there. And you can extend that parable further. You can, you can, you can go all around the world and say these places have been way over-photographed. So to be authentic is the first filter. So the first thing we think about is has it been done before and has it been done well before? And in 95% of the time, the answer is it has been done before. And in most cases, somewhere along the line, it's been done well. But you're still going to get some through. Uh, and the second filter is a pragmatic one, which is commerciality. We have um, um expression here called Gate, And Gate basically, what, what, what it's in, uh, alluding to is the idea that We've looked into pictures of the big Komodo dragon in Indonesia, uh, and they live on three islands, one of which is called Komodo. But the best ones are in a place called Rinka, which is about a kilometre away. 
and we feel that if we went there with our with a good team with the best people on the ground we could get a picture that's not doesn't transcend all others because that would be incredibly arrogant to say that but a picture that we think might be strong immersive intimate captures these enormous lizards in their natural habitat uh, in a way that maybe elicits some sort of reaction in people. So it would pass the authenticity test or originality test. The problem is I think it would fail the commerciality test because who wants a a bloody giant lizard on their wall? Who's going to want to part with the same amount of money as a small car to have a lizard with sort of drool coming out of its mouth coming towards you? And the answer is probably very, very few people. So which is why we call it Komodo Gate, because a lot of our ideas pass on authenticity and originality, but they don't pass on commerciality. So we all the time, just like so many people, like what your friends would do on a Monday morning, we throw ideas around. And wherever I am in the world, we will have a Monday morning meeting. Because I'm quite often in the West Coast of America, those Monday morning meetings tend to be at five o'clock in the afternoon. And we'll just, it's uh, idea generation enfranchises everyone, from a 10-year-old up to a 90-year-old. In fact, it's the young people that quite often got the best ideas because they're more in touch with contemporary society. and most of the ideas I dismiss, and then occasionally we'll just go and go, that's a great idea. So, for instance, tomorrow I go to Los Angeles and we are recreating stills from The Wolf of Wall Street. Um, is it original? Well, it's not really necessarily totally original because the film's out and, there's, and now there's immersive theater out about it and whatever. But I think where we do have a bit of originality is Jordan Belford, who is the wolf, is collaborating with us. I'm seeing him for dinner tomorrow night, Thursday night. And we've got dealing rooms, we've got ticker screens, we've got all, and we're bringing wolves. So rather than having DiCaprio as the wolf, we'll have real wolves as the wolf of Wall Street. And we'll then, everything else, we'll just see what happens. And... We've got a whole host of girls trying to play Margot Robbie, which will be quite fun. <laughs> for you, yeah. <laughs> well, for my team, not for yeah, me. Yeah. Too much pressure for sure, me. Sure, sure, sure. And uh, we'll just see what happens. Uh, so I think that certainly if we get that right, it's commerciality. Mm. Uh, uh, and if we get it wrong, it's expensive. And But it always had authenticity because I haven't seen it being done before. Um, because I think we have better relationships with wolves than most people in America so the, the wolves are coming and so important to try something different new push the boundaries I am um, I have a heli- I've um, I don't know whether I've got ADD or whether I've got a, um, I'm paranoid of the mundane I think if my friends would tell me that I'm probably I'm paranoid of the mundane I don't do mundane and as an artist, as an original content. It's funny because everyone associates original content with uh, Hulu and Amazon Prime and Netflix, but we actually are an original content brand. We have to have original content in order to be able to finance the projects that we do. And where we might have found ourselves in a sweet spot is because we're taking it on on our own. If we've got an idea at a time when a lot of editors are clamping down on the money they can spend on photographic still content, 
we can throw money at it. So we don't, we're, we're, we're not scared to spend uh, 250000 on a two-day shoot so long as we've got all the ducks in line. Whereas for just about everyone else, that is a bridge too far. Mm. But we've got to get it right. Wow, that's an incredible place to be, isn't it? You've created that, you've got to that point through sheer determination, hard work yeah. and creativity and everything else. Um, one thing I'm curious about is you talk a lot about needing, wanting to elicit an emotional response from a picture. How do you know you've got that until somebody steps back and looks at the photo? Yeah. Uh, it's a good question. It's another good one. Um, I think we, we know... 90% of the time and the 10% we get it wrong is probably that we're too tough on ourselves I think the toughest edit is ourselves and we sometimes uh, dismiss pictures that other people's engage with if we think we've got it we probably underestimate what it might mean to other people just because we were there at the time and we're slightly used to it I took a picture six weeks ago um, of the two biggest elephants in the world and uh, I remember even coming back it was about 7.30 in the morning and I remember coming back to camp at about midday and looking at the picture on the screen and whatever and then just going and playing cards with the team and totally slightly forgetting that we'd taken that picture because we were, we were there and we were used to it. And when we, uh, when we decided how to price it, we all d- decided how to price it that afternoon again, which was probably an error. And six weeks later, there's none left around the world. So we obviously made an error in that afternoon um, because we went too low. So I think there are times when it works the other way. Um, and a lot depends on the animal. Um, I took a picture in uh, uh, the most northerly town in the world, which is a place called Pyramid. It's about uh, 80 degrees north. It's a Russian mining town. And there's only about 10 people live there. It's abandoned. And, uh, Sounds bleak. It's, yeah, it's, it's cold and bleak. Uh, and if you're going to be photographing the most northerly town <laughs> in the world, uh, what do you want in front of it? you want a polar bear and when the polar, when I got a polar bear in front of it with shafts of light coming through the late afternoon cloud it had a Game of Thrones feel to it and I was so excited that night that I got the picture but it was maybe partly because I was in such a remote place which is normally empty of content and I, I, I had no radio contact with my team. We were outside radio contact. There was no way of getting hold of anyone. And when I got back to the place where we could call people, I said to, I said to my team, I've got a great picture. Um, and since then, we haven't sold one copy of that picture. And so it works the other way. And I think part of that reason is sometimes when you are in an extreme place, you want to you clutch onto straws. You want to say, I've, got, I've managed yeah, to garner yeah, something yeah. from this. But it doesn't resonate with other people because other people, unless, yeah, unless they're a Game of Throners and they imagine sort of life north of the wall or whatever, mm. it just didn't strike a chord. So we get it wrong sometimes, but mostly we get it wrong the other way. Mm. Which um, is the good way around to get it wrong, yeah, I, guess. I, I guess. But I, I notice you talk about they, we, 
um, in the plural. But ultimately, this comes down to you, doesn't it? Um, I mean, there's probably your modesty preventing you from just talking about yourself, but uh, this has got to be your decision, surely, and in that moment, you know, uh, your gut instinct tells you if, you, think, if you've I, captured a moment. I think, I think there's... Uh, in the whole business, there's a lot of people, but in terms of the garnering of original content... Uh, there is me, but then there are people that are, we work with in the field that are critically important to us, and we we think we work with the best people, and those people are local to wherever we go. So if we're trying to photograph orangutans in the middle of a jungle in Borneo, we're obviously going to use different people to photographing polar bears mm. in, the, in, in the north slope of Alaska, and they will be best in class, and they will be people that we incentivize We've kind of tried to change things in terms of how people in the field are paid. If you pay people in the field a day rate, like everyone else, that's fine. But I don't think you harbour any sense of partnership. Mm. So what They might not go above and beyond. Yeah. It's, mm. it, to me, it's a bit like going into um, a den of ill repute in the old days in the Wild West. You go and do what you have to do and then you leave. And mm. it's very cursory and perfunctory. Whereas what, what we want to do is harbour a sense of partnership. And that means that whoever we work with in the field, whenever we sell a picture where they have been involved with, they continue to get paid. Which means that someone in Kenya or That's someone cool. in Borneo or an Inuit mm. cannot just earn $500. Because $500 is fantastic in in the community they might live in but it's not going to change things but if you can turn around and say if you really really want to help us we can pay $25,000 then that does make a difference Mm -hmm. and we do feel that it means that they'll go the extra mile for us Mm -hmm. Uh, whether that's getting up at 3 in the morning whether it's um, just not not breaking rules but going the extra mile Mm -hmm. And the extra mile doesn't tend to be too crowded, we find that. How, that. Well, yeah, that tells you a lot about those people that you work with. How, how do you strike that balance between the controlled environment and the wild? And how much is that sort of fraught with jeopardy and danger? And do you get a kick off that? There's like four questions in there, sorry. Yeah, so I do... Um, but how do, you, how do you decide what's appropriate? So when we work with wild animals, it's always, they're always wild, um, we just know the rules, we know their behaviour, um, whether it be polar bears or tigers or lion, elephant. It's actually the animals that people don't suspect that are the most scary, <laughs> like crocodiles and snakes. Or oh, humans. I, or humans. <laughs> I had a dream last night and I screamed in the middle of the, jumped out of my bed and charged around because I thought I was being attacked by a snake. Snakes, snakes and crocodiles I get most scared about. Um, when we do controlled shots... And by controlled shots, they tend to be staged stuff with animals that are um, habituated, that they can live with humans um, or not bite humans. But they'll always have a, a trainer or a wrangler with them. In those circumstances, like with the Wolf of Wall Street, those are, those are not going to be wild wolves no. that we've just you know, picked up from Montana. They will, be, they will live in a sanctuary. They'll still, if they see a rabbit, they'll go for the rabbit. But... They, they won't bite someone, which is quite useful because some of the girls 
that we've worked with with Wolves are very expensive and we wouldn't want a lawsuit for a bite on Sidney Crawford's ear. Um, but uh, If I was a wolf, I wouldn't go for her ear, just so you know. No, that's probably right. Me neither. The, uh, I think um, it puts more pressure on the photographer because if the animals are to an extent under your control, the only person that can mess it up is the photographer. And... Uh, that puts a bit of extra, like this shit in LA, the person that, basically if we don't get it right, the person that will be blamed is me. Whereas in the wild, um, if things don't work out, it is the nature of the game, that is nature. And quite often we come back from the wild uh, with nothing. It's a, like a big game fisherman. It's a Hemingway story that the old man in the sea, you, you do come back quite often with nothing. But that is, that is entirely consistent with having occasionally differential content because if all the time you succeeded, something's wrong. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mm. That you should, there should be periods where you just and say... there be more people doing it. Exactly. Mm. So, um, and our rule of the thumb is a failed trip in the wild is because we take a, tea, a, a film crew most of the time. So a failed trip is 50 grand. So if we, if we do a trip somewhere and we don't get something, that's 50 grand. Mm. And, and that's, that's good. It's well, good. It's a chunk of cash though, isn't it? It's a chunk, isn't it? But it focuses the mind. Um, the difference between us and Netflix, dare I say it, albeit they're 10 billion times <laughs> our size, is that when Netflix um, produce a series like The Crown which, as we know, is 8 million an episode, they will amortise the cost of that programming through the potential life of the series. So if they think The Crown is going to be is, is six years' worth of subscription, they will amortise that cost over the six years. If we um, have a failed trip or a successful trip, it goes through the P&L that day. And that really focuses the mind in terms of are we doing the right thing? And I, I guess if we have too many failed trips, and we go through 
I had two failed trips in a row this summer. So, so how, how often are we talking, though, in, in a year, for example? We'd how do, many trips would you do and how many would we'd, be we'd about, a success? About 18, 18 assignments a year. Yeah, about and 18. how many of those wouldn't work? I would say six, wow. five, five. And how, how does that leave you feeling? Um, well, on the way back, you just look at trips that have succeeded. Yeah. You go through, it's like a senior shrink. You go and you say, <laughs> well, we messed up this time, but look what I got three yeah, years ago. Absolutely. It's always a sign with all of us. When we're at the airport on the way back from not getting anything um, other than having a drink, we probably look at things that have gone well. And we remind ourselves that it's not that easy. That failure, success is 99% failure. I'm convinced of the fact that it's through failing you learn to succeed. Mm. Because you never want to make the same, same mistake twice. Um, you learn. Even if the elements, the odds have been against you, you think, well, I'm not going to do that that time. And, uh, so there is an iterative relationship between failure and success. I mean. We touched on loneliness uh, in your previous life. Mm. Uh, do you ever get lonely when you're out on these shoots in the middle of nowhere? Because I'll tell you one thing that I found from, from travelling a lot with work um, and this is this is more so before I had kids, was that you went to some, I went to some incredible places, and I felt a real emptiness in that moment because I really wanted to share that with somebody that I really loved. And I wondered, you must have seen some beautiful things, some beautiful moments and sunsets, you know. If you're not sharing that with someone you love, do you come back keen to return and have a more kind of emotionally enriched experience? Uh, the short answer to that, of course, is yes. Um, but you make up. And my son is 16 now, uh, my daughter's 19. And, but my son is doing a lot of photography and he comes on trips. And the joy I get from him s- saying things like, that was the most awesome day of my life and thank oh. you so much. So it's, it's payback time. Yeah, there's been North Korea, I've spent time in North Korea, I've spent time in Mongolia on my own. North Korea on your own for 10 days is quite tough. Um, and um, I, there are trips, there are assignments that uh, my team don't like the extreme cold. They prefer the heat and the jungle, whereas I don't like the jungle. But sometimes... Because of the snakes. The snakes and the, everything bites you. Every, just everything bites you. Yeah. Um, and you can't, it can't cool down. And if you want to go for a swim... There are things that eat you in the water and stuff. Yeah, and I, 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 I'm, I'm all for the four seasons. Not all the time, <laughs> but whenever, whenever I come back from the jungle, I just say, "Take me to the four seasons." <laughs> um, uh, oh, I must just say something about your son that really made me laugh at your um, exhibition the other day. Um, by the way, lovely kids. I mean, they are massive credit to you. I know that you don't spend nearly enough time with them as you'd want to, but you know, yeah. fantastic kids. Um, I could say they're kids, they've grown up. And Cameron came in with this guy and he introduced me to him. And I said, oh, what, what do you do? He goes, well, I'm Cameron's photography teacher at school. I went, oh, you poor bugger. And he's brought you here. No pressure. And he, he was a lovely guy and he had a good laugh. But he said, yeah, talk about that. You know, yeah. Yeah, To bring tough. me to his dad's exhibition <laughs> is like... But anyway, yeah, um, I, I digress. But... Um, yeah. What were you talking about? I can't we were remember. Talking about, um, uh, yeah, sharing but, the moments with yeah, ones you love yeah. and the places you go to. Cause, um, yeah. There are moments. I mean, you have two extremes. Uh, I Last week was exhausting and we must have seen 2,000 people and you forget some people's names and you're dragged everywhere and then you do the weekend and it's you're just running on empty. And 
in a way, um, to be, I wish right now I was going to somewhere like North Korea. It would be quite <laughs> nice to, to go from one extreme to the other. Um, it's not, unfortunately, we're going to, to LA, but LA will be quieter and, and give me some downtime a bit. Um, but um, yeah, it's a life of contrast. You're sort of in the middle of two, nowhere on your two, own, and too, too many two, people. There's two jobs, yeah. and uh, and I enjoy both. I'm very glad I don't have to do one the whole time. Uh, one the whole time would be tough. I think what's helped me uh, is that a lot of photographers that spend time in the wild, um, in the outdoors, and I know quite a few of them. They tend to be they tend to be loners. Um, I'm not. I'm a. I'm. Um, I must prefer. I'm so bored myself. I want to spend time with just about anyone other than myself. I, I, I strike up conversations with the Uber driver from the moment getting into the car. Where even if they're from Uzbekistan, I'm talking about life in Bishkek on a Friday night. So I, I really don't want to talk about myself. Um, so I, I like the interaction side of things. Um, uh, but there, there, there are moments for. When you go to the Arctic and the Antarctic, um, you can it can be quite lonely. It can be. Um, I remember being in an igloo, <laughs> and it was the only time I got frostbite in my life. And we were in northern Canada, and frostbite is really boring. Even mild sign of frostbite, uh, it's sore and it throbs, and it was just so cold. And then when you're up there on your own, and you've got no one that you know to talk to. Um, it, it, um, it can be quite bleak uh, and when to get back from there down to you end up in in uh, Ottawa and then yeah, Montreal eventually I remember being in Montreal I just wanted to talk to absolutely everyone I could find <laughs> just after a week sort of being on my own in an igloo there's a bloke at the bar he's buying drinks yeah, for anyone yeah, that will yeah, drink I've with him <laughs> yeah Along with Bose, In the Pink is sponsored by Tag Heuer, Swiss avant-garde since 1860. Excellence, precision and elegance. Their timepieces are designed for those who love challenges, which is a great fit for this podcast because most of the guests share that sentiment. What about the philanthropic side of things? Because I know conservation is hugely important to you. I, I, I want to start by asking you, particularly from your travels, how grave a threat do you feel that we're facing at the moment and how much pressure do you feel as a photographer capturing images that could change the world to do something about it? Uh, this is going to be the uh, serious side of the interview. Mm. The serious side of the interview. Uh, I, I, um, first and foremost, I think we have to be careful that we do not uh, give an Armageddon scenario. And there are a lot of people that think that mainstream conservationists are daft and they're of course they're not and they probably just emotionally more aware and have a great greater spirituality than people that don't think about the fact that we share the planet with other people but it's not all a doom and gloom and uh, whilst um, Greta has done a fantastic job in terms of putting it on the front lawn of every household in the UK and in, in, in the world in a way that adults didn't do. Uh, the message maybe is too one-dimensional and, it's, and the picture is more mixed and 
perhaps she portrayed it to be. And there's not easy solutions to population growth. If you look at the, the risks that the world faces, the ones that I worry about least are, firstly, Minneapolis dentist shoots lion. It's barbaric. It's medieval. It's abhorrent. But it's legal in South Africa. At some stage it won't be, but it's not affecting the lion mm. population in the world. We might not like it. Yeah, we certainly don't like him. Yeah. But It's not yeah, the issue. Okay. Secondly, uh, uh, poaching is uh, equally for either whether it's people snorting rhino horn in Vietnam or whether people using ivory is uh, for ornaments in the Filipino mm. church or in, in mainland China. It is shocking that that goes on and that trade route is allowed to get, to still happen mm-hmm. but both of the supply end and demand end progress is being made i'm not saying that the end is in sight of poachers but it's certainly ameliorating that the, the the i think the worst days are not necessarily emphatically behind us i don't think it's getting any worse mm-hmm. there are but still, the message is getting through yeah, do you feel yes exactly and and and, and you know, whether it be um Prince Harry, Prince William here, whether it be a, a huge work from NGOs or American money going into, uh, into Africa or organizations dealing with the um, demand end like Wild Aid in California with their marketing campaign, which is very persuasive. Things are um, not getting any worse. The big issues are uh, population growth and the corollary to that is global warming. Um, I'm not an expert on global warming. Um, The only two things I would say on it are it's clearly been a very hot couple of years. Equally, last year was one of the coldest years in Siberia for a very long time, one of the coldest weeks in Chicago for 40 years. I'm not a doubter. Um, It's just less clear than population growth and of course the two are linked so it'd be rather silly for me to say that population growth and climate change are separate issues they're clearly linked but the population of Africa in percentage terms is going to grow an awful lot quicker than the average temperature in the world is in percentage terms they are one is dwarfed by the other Mm. what does that mean it means that the lion is far more vulnerable than the polar bear because people, where the polar bear lives, people aren't. People don't want to live. Actually, people are r- moving mm-hmm. from where the polar bear mm-hmm. lives because there's no employment opportunities. So you're not going to see population growth in Nunavut, Canada. Uh, it's a, in one of the most sparsely populated. You're, if you're ever flying to LA from the UK or Europe, and the first time you touch land on a clear, see land on a clear day, and you look out the window in May, J- May, April, May, June. I often, I do look out the window and you think, how can anyone possibly live down there? It it looks cold and bleak and just thousands of miles of ice. So the polar bear's landscape might have altered a little bit, but the polar bear numbers are static and it would take an awful lot to dissuade me otherwise. And I speak to a lot of scientists um, in the four countries that look at polar bear numbers, which are America or five, America, Canada, Greenland, Denmark, Norway, and Russia. So Greenland and Denmark being one. Um, So they're kind of static at about 35,000, they reckon. Um, The lion is down to about 15,000, 16,000 because of population growth. 
uh, it's nothing to do with global warming. It is just the population of Africa is growing, mm. and it's growing at a rate far beyond anywhere else in the world. And you can look at your numbers for the next 20 years, but I think 80% of the world's population growth in the next 20 years will be in Africa. And it's difficult to know what, how to address that. You can't, mm. you can't get elected on the mandate of zero economic growth or one child per family. So the answers are not going to be uh, natural. They will be contrived answers, which is buying land and allowing the, the, those animals to like buy on that, live on that land that you bought without human encroachment. From my perspective, um, I think we have two roles. Firstly, build awareness. If I if my show, by having pictures that are close up, personal, so you can almost look into the soul of the animal. I posted a picture on Instagram a couple of days ago, and someone turned. I talked about the soul, and someone replied. And I, I, I tried not to look too much at Instagram replies, but I, I, I saw this one, and someone said, "You idiot! Animals don't have souls." And I, and I thought, well, I've seen orangutans and elephants, and there isn't emotionally intelligent Absolutely. as we are. Um, so I, I, I struggle with that. I think he's <laughs> probably shown he doesn't have a soul yeah. in that <laughs> Maybe. Uh. Um, So uh, we have a job to, to, to raise awareness. But to awareness to what end? Because if it is a population growth issue, what are we trying to educate individuals to do? Sure. I mean, that's a good point. Um, raising awareness does absolutely nothing. But if raising awareness leads to change in attitudes, which accelerates the growth of financing of uh, antidotes to it, then yeah. it has done something. It's amazing that 2015, 2016, you look where issues like we didn't talk about female empowerment. The idea that mm -hmm. the the um, American football team should be paid the same, the female American football team should be paid the same mm -hmm. as, uh, I don't know, Ronaldo. Not that they are, but the idea then would have been laughed off, whereas mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. it's a kind it's of It's just starting the play. conversation yeah. and then that... Yeah. It, and, and, yeah. And, and, and the same with um, objectification of women, uh, Me mm -hmm. Too, mm -hmm. everything can move very, very quick. The speed of change mm -hmm. now, because mm -hmm. of social media, is far quicker than what it was before. And uh, I think conservation is, is, is a, a very much part of that. Mm -hmm. Things that people are, People's views in conservation are moving very, very quickly. Sorry. Um, but raising awareness, you're right, it's a wishy-washy term. Well, no, it's not. I mean, I'm all for it. And I think you're right. It's all about a conversation and it's about making small changes in your environment that then have a bigger impact. Uh, I'm interested to hear your view on extension extinction rebellion and whether that kind of protest approach has benefits or is it just snarling it goes, up central london it goes to what i said earlier on in that uh, i think if you took the 10 10 leading conservationists in africa of which the majority of them are american and some some are brits um, and you ask them, them that question, none of these guys are um, extremists. They are, tend to be from, they've had successful careers, they've employed thousands of people, they've done that by 
um, applying logic and rationale, work ethic and intelligence, dignity, manners. And I think they would not sit comfortably with the people that are organising chaos in London whilst they might still recognise what what is what is engendered in the first place. Mm-hmm. There are the, the 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 president of both America and Russia, two most powerful countries in the world, um, are dismissive of to an extent conservationists. Mm. Let's not get away from the, that fact. They are dismissive of conservationists, and they are two very powerful men. Um, they get fueled to their fire by these events in London, mm. and that's no use. That's no use. It's, um, we we have to be smarter than that. It has to be done with dignity, quietly, um, and they might not be in full knowledge of all the, all the facts. Well, you're worried these protests are actually undermining the, the, the bigger movement that could be making a difference. There's a, there's a danger that ex, extremists always do that. It's in, mm-hmm. it's in history that um, if you're an extremist, you can tarnish things for, for, mm-hmm. for other people. Um, I wonder how many of those people that are in London right now have been on the north slope of Alaska, have been to the Serengeti. And, of course, if they heard me saying that, they would say, well, that's very entitled because you can afford to go there. Mm. But equip yourself before you go and do that. Mm. Um, I, I, the counter-argument have... is obviously that if it does provoke conversation and debate, that's got to be a good thing. And if it's on the front pages of the papers and talks about it in the news, then even if one kid notices that and says we need to lead different lives, then it's got to be worth it. Yeah, it's, and it's difficult to argue against that. I mean, I'm playing devil's advocate because you know better yeah, than I. Well, it's, it's to did the protesters in Paris every Saturday do good for France? Um, and that's an interesting. And just to use an analogy, I don't think so. I think they killed a lot of businesses. A lot, I know several people that went bust in their businesses because of that. Who then employ people. So, but but the central message is there, and it's not it's not going away. Um, imagine if there's a very cold winter this winter, and there's no reason to suggest that there might not be. It could easily happen. As I say, last I remember being in Chicago last January, and it was people were told not to go outside their homes. It was minus thirty-five, and there was a grave risk in northern Siberia. It was as cold as it's been for thirty, forty years. So you will have outliers to the whole global warming front. And there are parts of, in Tanzania, I think next month, there has to be a culling of thousands of hippos in Tanzania next month because there are just too many hippos in the area right now. So, And there is a government-organized culling. Animals breed, and they breed quickly. Mm. And the, there are parts of Kenya where there are too many elephants. In Savo where there's about 12,000 elephants, that's about it for the ecosystem. You don't want more than that. Amboseli is probably right to where it is right now, Botswana, where the vast majority of the elephants are. It's probably about peak. Um, And so you you look at the 400,000 elephant probably left in the world, a lot of them in areas where it's at peak capacity. Then there are countries where... um, 
Central African Republic, Chad, where poaching is decimated elephants, but there have been a small part of the uh, population. And then South Africa, which is just such a mess that it's a law unto itself. I think a lot of people just, it's the variable that you don't look at because the Kruger Park is um, so densely vegetated, so much money that the poachers can come in with helicopters, um, and it's close to the eastern seaboard, Maputo, the routes to China. So what goes on in the Kruger, people use as an example for it's out of hand, but it's just one small ecosystem. I've never gone to photograph elephants in the Kruger because it's just not where I would go and want to photograph them. Mm. But that's, and rhinos, with rhinos, there are about 28,000 rhinos left in the world and it's static. And of the 1,400 that are poached every year, 1,200 are in the Kruger. So of the, so the poaching is Bloody 90% hell. of in one ecosystem. My God. Uh, can you just... Um Tell me anything about shark fin soup. What's the situation with that at the moment? D- just out of interest, because I saw a documentary on it a while ago, um, and I wanted to know if you knew any updates. You might not. Have you ever photographed sharks? Yeah, I photographed sharks in uh, in Cape Town, um, and they're shark. They, well, not in Cape Town, <laughs> on the streets of Cape Town, but right. in False Bay, um, which was the best place to photograph great mm. whites in the world, and then. Um, and an orca came in, killed a great white, and oh, the wow. great whites have all moved. Oh my god! So here's you didn't get that on camera, did you? No, <laughs> the orca going yeah. in. Yeah, but that wouldn't sell. The reportage. Right? <laughs> so here's a controversial thing I'm going to say, uh, and I know that the majority of people aren't going to agree with me on this. Um, when I go to the North Slope of Alaska, which is largely a Native American um, communities. Uh, those communities for 150 years have been whaling communities uh, and those communities would die were whaling to be abandoned and abolished and animals and people are equally important um, I would be a fraud if I said that people are more important than, than animals with both tenants but I think indigenous communities that where hunting has been part of their tradition and part of their income, I'm accepting the idea that it would be a great shame for those communities to die if that practice was abolished. Mm. And at some levels, it's not extreme. Like the North Slope of Alaska, these towns are allowed to bring three or four whales in in September every year. And that sustains that village for the whole year which is why we go up there to watch it, because that's where the polar bears come, to where the whales are being brought in. In the Faroe Islands, clearly the practice of surrounding the pilot whales into that area and slaughtering them is like a scene out of Game of Thrones. It it is barbaric. Um, I don't think in my life that tradition will change, because... We've seen how quite our force for the Danish government were about Donald Trump trying to buy Greenland, and I don't think they're going to be any different about the idea of the pilot whale harvesting, no matter how barbaric it looks for us. Japan, I mean, I know a lot of people were there, uh, lucky people were there, unless you're Scottish watching the World Cup right now. <laughs> and I love Japan. I, I think it's the one place in the world where, particularly if you go to North Island, 
uh, other than North Korea. But if you go up to the north, uh, the Kaido and places, I love the fact they can't even be bothered to speak English. They have no idea what you're talking about. And you can feel a bit like that film uh, with Bill Murray, Lost, Lost in Translation, yeah. And I, it was one of my favourite films. Film. And I love it there that they just don't give a shit mm. because they're so proud of their culture. And they're also one of the most lovely, gracious, kind, uh, dignified cultures in the world. There is a serenity to the whole place. It's one of my favorite places to go. So then you get down to the whole whale and shark thing in Japan. How do you reconcile that? I, um, I think it's a very, very tough one. It is part of their culture. And where do you draw where do you draw the line i know they're big 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 fish and i don't know the answer to that um um i don't have a good answer for that but i but um i do think that cultures should not be bullied into submission unless it's totally barbaric i think the pharaohs is the one that visually is the most barbaric mm. if, if, you, it, if it's threatening Extinction of sharks, and that's got to be the line, hasn't it? it? I know, but I don't know. I don't know whether that is the case, yeah. given how big the oceans are. If you, if with with blackfish and and the film and um, orcas in um, Disneyland kind of attractions, one hundred percent that should not be happening. Mm. They're the brightest yeah. animal. You know, orcas never attacked a human, as far to the best of our knowledge. Yeah. You're too young, but I remember after Jaws, there was that film called Orca with Richard Harris and whatever, where the orca attacked the fishing village, and we all thought orcas attack humans. Orcas don't attack mm. humans, mm. but they are incredibly intelligent. And the idea of them being kept in a sea world, I think, uh, where they have attacked humans, mm. and there's the point. Um, so I feel I'm fairly crystal clear on that, mm. that that should, uh, should not happen. Um, I, I, with regard to Japan's fishing practices, uh, it's so it's, I, it's so difficult, and we we get our caught ourselves into trap because even take even take our royal family. Should our royal family be allowed to go and shoot partridges, grouse, pheasants religiously on a Saturday throughout the autumn and winter and Christmas and New Year? and just shoot 300 birds out of the sky that have been bred to fly from woods and then be blown to pieces by a gun. It's a very difficult question to answer mm. that. And then, of course, they're conservationists. And that's not an easy question for them to, to answer, and glad I'm not in that position. Mm. I, don't, I know that my, from my perspective, I, can't sh- I, I turn down shooting invitations mm. because I know I'll just get, I'll just get abuse. If, if I ever did go on one, which would never happen, I'll be out there giving the bird CPR, on the <laughs> mouth to mouth. Yeah. Um, listen, it's just been so lovely to talk to you, and I know you're sort of guy, particularly if I brought that nice big bottle of wine here, we could sit and talk all night, and you could teach me a Absolutely. hell of a lot. So maybe that's for another time. But um, do you have a favourite animal? I know you've, you've talked about polar bears a lot. Are they your favourite? No, because their eyes are hollow. The, eye, the eyes, the polar bear eye, you can't get anything from the eyes. It's, it reminds me a little bit of the people in Rwanda, the genocide, where you can look right through the eye. 
I thought you were uh, going to say it reminded me of a woman I once knew. <laughs> no, no. Well, that too. Yeah. Um, I think... Uh, oh, that's interesting, yeah. Because their eyes are just black. Um, you admire them for their fortitude, and they are far stronger than people oh, give them credit they for. They are big bastards. Well, and they just... They, if, the, if there's no ice flow, they're not going to go for a swim. They'll just hang around. Where, and um, and they, I remember being in this place in the North Slip of Alaska, and I, I was staying in a porter cabin, and there was a little latch in the middle of the night. I pulled the latch open, and there were 14 polar bears just no. circling my container. No. Yeah, yeah. So that was, what did you do? Well, I just stayed in the container. <laughs> I didn't go out for a smoke, obviously. Oh, my God. Uh, Are they like elephants in that if they see a solid block, they'll walk around it? Yeah, they couldn't see me inside it. So they don't, they don't yeah. know. But if they knew you were inside well, it, would they, they attack be, it? Yeah, but they couldn't get in. There's no way they're going to get in. Okay. Um, I uh, think how that... I think... I, think uh, I mean, tigers uh, oh. are magnificent. When you, when you first see the stripes... And it's extraordinary evolution of species because they have those stripes as camouflage for, because their, their body paint exactly matches the habitat in which they live. And it's quite extraordinary how the, the world has evolved, that that's how they've survived, yeah. because they're camouflaged. And therefore, they're the leaders of the jungle because their coats look like the, the, the burnout trees and the brands of, of an Indian jungle. It's, a, it's extraordinary that that is the way that the world has evolved, that they're, that's why they're still there, because they can make kills easier because people couldn't see them. Um, As David said that, we both looked up to the wall to our right, which is two absolutely magnificent tigers. He's killed four people, the first person. He's a man-eater. And that's his son behind. And uh, he's called, rather unglamorously, T24. Um, And, uh, yeah, he's killed four people. What, in a local village or something? Yeah, just people doing their washing in the river. And you're told not to do your washing in the river. These are not... People that are the Grand Hyatt doing the washing. No, 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 these, no, are, no, yeah, these are people. Uh, oh my god! Uh, and actually, one was a ranger, which and then he, so, he, but he wasn't put down. That would have been the wrong thing to do. He was put into uh, a zoo. He's got a fairly menacing look about him. He looks actually as if he might. He's just eyeing you up. He saying, oh, oh yeah, well, he looks a bit tasty. Yeah, he was eyeing me up. Um, I think uh, elephants have. Uh, they are so smart, and the big elephants, like the ones we haven't shown recently with the big tusks. That's that's exciting to do that, okay. um, and I spent a lot of time with lion. I guess um, um, I think those it's the big guys. It's always the big guys. I'm not really that interested in squirrels <laughs> and uh, you know small rodents or whatever. So it's, <laughs> the, it's the big, big, big ones I'm interested in. Giraffes are cool as well. Yeah, gangly little buggers, aren't they? They're um, dangerous as well. Are they? Yeah. What? Well, the guy got killed last week because he just necked him. So, yeah, you can, with a neck, you can kill someone with a neck. And the guy was in a truck, and he, and he, he surprised the giraffe. He's in the back of a truck. And the giraffe just banged him with his neck. Whoa. Broke his neck and killed Take him. Take him out. Yeah. Um, I kind of want to end on a, on a happy on note. A happy note. Okay. The, happy, the happy note is, for me, you, know, you talked earlier on about my change in my life. It's, it's good. Follow your passion. And... I'm very lucky. I don't really work. I do spend time. I'm not looking to forward to four hours at US immigration at LAX mm. tomorrow. But by and large, that's the only work I do is going through airports. The rest of it is fun, and uh, it's, it's lovely to to be just doing what you should be doing, following your passion.
That is the perfect note to end on. David Yarrow, thank you very much for your time. So, that was David Yarrow. What did you think? Let me have your feedback, rate, review, subscribe. Don't forget to look at our Instagram page in the pink to find out how you can win those very cool headphones. And also to give me your feedback on the guests that are coming up. There are plenty more on the way, including Denise Van Outen, Tubes from Soccer AM, and Lee Dixon, Arsenal and England favourite. So make sure you join us for some of those. Until then... Take care, see you soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.